time for the 119th QuackCast. This one is called Two Viewpoints. You know, I've pretty much given up introductions for these things. I don't see the point anymore. It's just nice to get right to brass tacks, whatever the hell that means. And as a warning, I'm doing these podcasts outside today. So you may hear stray cars, barking dogs, birds chirping. But I'm not sitting inside on a beautiful Oregon summer day. Most of what I read professionally is directed towards reality-based medicine. I spend my professional energies thinking about the application of reality to killing various and sundry microscopic pathogens. The conceptual framework I use, and that used by others in medicine, does not concern itself with the application of supplements, complementary, and alternative medicines that occupy the attention of this podcast. In acute care medicine, scams are virtually no importance. Yet the approaches we need to take care of patients in medicine are, with slight changes in emphasis, as applicable to scams as real medicine. You need to remember, however, that this topic is not necessarily based in known reality. Two viewpoints in JAMA caught my attention this month, both more thoughtful and reasoned than I am probably capable of. While focused on the application of reality-based medical practice, they apply to topics of science-based medicine as well. The first is evidence-based persuasion, an ethical imperative. Evidence-based persuasion. At some level, evidence-based persuasion is the raison d'etre, how's that for a French accent, of this podcast and the antithesis of the scam world. That it is considered an ethical imperative makes its lack of use in the scam world all the more damning. The article points out in the introduction that, quote, there are at least three types of persuasion. The first is the removal of bias. The second is recommending a particular course of action and providing evidence and reasons in favor of it. And the third is the potential creation of new biases, which could cross the line into unethical manipulation. End of quote. They go on to give examples applied to the practice of medicine. How about science-based medicine? The first kind of persuasion, the removal of bias, is the primary theme of this podcast. Listeners to this podcast and readers of the Science-Based Medicine blog are very much aware of the types of biases that can warp judgment. I have long said that the three most dangerous words in medicine are in my experience, because experience is unreliable in helping decide what works in medicine. In medicine, experience can be the worst kind of bias. Ignoring experience is an unnatural way for humans to behave. Everything we do is a result of experience. The best restaurant in town, in Portland that's probably Castagna in my opinion, the fastest way to work, the best headphones, in every aspect of life, we rely on our experience and that of our social network to decide what to do. And then we go into medicine and attempt to heal illness and relieve suffering. And we are asked to lay aside a lifetime's approach to the world and rely on clinical trials? <laughs> Not likely. I had a patient just a few weeks ago ask me if she could take colloidal silver for her infection, and I told her it does nothing. She countered that, I was wrong that she had used it many times in the past, and it had always cured what ailed her. 
I knew I had not a chance in hell of convincing her otherwise, for as Groucho Marx said, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Actually, it was Chico that said that. Perhaps people are able to alter their biases when presented with the evidence, but I am not sure everyone is capable. When someone suggests that the reason I recommend vaccines or any other reality-based therapy is because I am a paid shill of Big Pharma, I know we inhabit two radically different realities that do not overlap. And such sentiments are not uncommon. Quote, One in seven Americans think that the pharmaceutical industry is colluding to invent new diseases in order to profit off them. End of quote. Sure. Big Pharma, like all companies, can behave with all the ethics of a psychotic shark, but the conspiratorial nature of some biases is just plain nuts. In medicine, when we discuss diagnostic and therapeutic interventions, we sometimes have to dissuade people of erroneous ideas that can prevent them from accepting care. It is rare in my world. Most people, when acutely infected, accept the interventions I have to offer, since the alternatives are usually rather unpleasant, including death. The only common interaction is the occasional new AIDS patient who refuses heart because they are convinced that the medications are toxic and kill people. After explaining the history of HIV treatment, I usually convince them to give it a try. As a result, I have many patients who would have died in months in the bad old days and who are now alive a decade later. It can be very satisfying. But what you going to do when they come for you? Now, what if your whole practice is based on bias, on unreality, and you cannot realize it? The only bias you can alter is to convince your patients that real medicine is fantasy and that your fantasy is reality. Welcome to, say, Natural News, the bizarro world of medicine. How about the second? Recommending a particular course of action and providing evidence and reasons in favor of it. That is hard for a scam provider. In my practice, hospital-based acute infectious diseases, it is reasonably simple. I know most of the pertinent literature for the common infections, and if I have some weird bug in an odd place, I research the problem and tell the patient the whys and wherefores of the proposed treatment. I know the science, I know the literature, not always the same thing, and I know the best options. What about a homeopath, an acupuncturist, or a Reiki practitioner? Reiki, R-E-I-K-I, not R-E-E-K-Y. Can an integrative medical department ethically offer using those therapies after comparing them to the known world? It is an interesting psychology. Based on nonsense that is the polar opposite to the understanding of reality, the only favorable evidence that can be offered is in my experience. It is a curiosity that real medicine uses what can be the least convincing arguments, those from the medical literature, while the homeopath has to rely on the least valid but most powerful argument, experience. Most patients want to know what kind of experience I have with treating a specific infection. Has it worked before? How many similar cases have I managed? And what would I suggest if it were my mother? I am always slightly unnerved with the question because I know how faulty my memory is, especially after 30 years of practicing medicine. I mean, I think I've seen something like 25,000 cases. 
like I can remember, but that is all the average scam provider has to offer. The last form of persuasion, that of creating new biases, is the most interesting. It is an interesting balance. Patient autonomy is paramount in U.S. medical ethics. They are the captain of their ship, and it is my job to give them my best opinion as to their diagnosis and treatment. On the other hand, the process of explanation will persuade them, and we all know the context of how information is given can create new biases. However, all scam is about creating new biases that are divorced from reality. It would be interesting to get an ethics consult and ask the question of a hospital's integrative medical department if they can live up to the recommendations for what constitutes ethical persuasion. Quote, 1. Remove bias and access the patient's autonomous wishes. 2. Provide honest, impartial, evidence-based information about prospective harms and benefits. Eh, lose. 3. Provide a rational interpretation of this information, including facts about the belief set and views regarding the best decision. Eh, lose. 4. Use reason rather than emotion, while sometimes appealing to the patient's emotions to counterbalance their existing emotional responses. Eh, lose. 5. Avoid creating new biases. I'll spare you the awful buzzing sound. They can't do it there either. And six, be sensitive to the patient's changing perspectives because persuasion is likely to change the patient's outlook and perspectives. I think scam providers certainly do that. The heart of all scam, of course, is the violation of the first five. Given that they are not based on known reality, they cannot follow those recommendations, and it should be unethical to offer scams in real medical environments, such as medical schools and community hospitals. However, scams make money, and where money is concerned, rationalizations will follow. The other viewpoint that caught my eye in JAMA was the article, Synthesizing Evidence, Shifting the Focus from Individuals to the Body of Evidence. The first sentence was intriguing. Quote, the research enterprise behaves as if a single study could provide the ultimate answer, 42, to a clinical question, end of quote. The rest of the essay is an argument that more emphasis should be placed on the results of meta-analyses and not rely on single studies. I do and do not agree with the authors, and there are always caveats. One of the issues that has always annoyed me with meta-analyses is that often as new studies are done and they are incorporated into the prior analyses, but the older, often more poorly done studies are not thrown out. So bad studies tend to pull down the good ones. The Cochrane Collaboration has a nice overview of the systematic review process, but they are done under the implicit assumption that what they are reviewing are studies that, well, evaluate reality. The Cochrane reviews usually fail when they apply their methods to topics such as homeopathy or acupuncture, where positive results are always due to bias because they are divorced entirely from reality. Even though they assess the quality of the studies, they do not take into the consideration the prior plausibility that renders so much of scam studies suspect. 
there is an arc in the literature concerning most scams. Better and better quality studies demonstrate less and less efficacy until well-designed studies demonstrate no effect. The potential for that arc, as best as I can tell, is not part of the systematic review, but would give a hint as to the validity of studies where the intervention is divorced from reality. A plot of study quality versus efficacy over time. But part of my job is being a data synthesizer. What is the best way, say, to treat MRSA pneumonia? Well, it can depend on many factors, some of which are not clear-cut or have no data at all. Is the flu vaccine a benefit? The answer depends on what is considered a benefit and in what population, what the meaning of is is. A single meta-analysis that looks at only PCR-proven influenza will not include effects on pregnancy, heart attack, stroke, or the lack of spread to the population not vaccinated. Whether or not a single study is superior or inferior to the collected wisdom of a systematic review depends upon the question being asked and the plausibility of the intervention being studied. I am not so certain that systematic reviews on fiction are a reliable way to understand the therapeutic efficacy of that fiction, but outside of that caveat, I agree with the author's conclusion. It is time to focus on the entire body of evidence. And the body of evidence concerning most of SCAM, as this podcast and the Science-Based Medicine blog demonstrates repeatedly, is that there is no there there. And so ends the 119th Quackcast.